Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are per persecuted for the righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Hi again, everyone. Good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Eric. I'm the pastor here at The Bridge, and it's great to be with you today and be able to share God's word with you. And I know we have a lot of new people joining us today, and we're in the middle of a series. So I'm just going to give you a brief recap of where we've been. The past several weeks, we have been talking about culture shock on Sunday mornings. You know that feeling when you move to a new country and you just realize they do things differently here. Like all the things I've taken for granted my entire life about how life works just don't hold true here. And it makes you question everything you've always believed about the world and how things are supposed to operate. And it, it takes your deepest assumptions about life and just throws them into chaos and forces you to reconsider what the right way to live really is. And we, we have been seeing that just as moving to a new country forces you to endure this culture shock and surprises you in this way, when we switch our allegiance from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, there's a surprise and culture shock and a new way of living that, that often surprises and shocks us that God calls us to. And so to help us understand this new way of living, that God calls us to, if we are citizens of his kingdom, we have been looking at the Beatitudes, which is the list that Roland just read to us. It's a list of people that Jesus says are blessed. They have God's blessing. And we've been saying blessed, on, on one level, it means that God approves of them, that God is happy with them. But on a deeper level, it also means they are the type of people that you and I are supposed to envy. When we look at the people on this list, we're supposed to just have this feeling inside us that, oh, I wish I could be like that person. That's, that's what blessed means. That's meant to be our response when we see these types of people. If you want to live the you know, hashtag blessed life, that's the type of people that Jesus says we should aim to be. And so the list so far has been quite shocking. He started out, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual beggars who know there's absolutely nothing they can do 
to make God accept them or love them. They're, they're the ones that we should envy because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then the second week, blessed are those who mourn, who, who see their spiritual poverty and are emotionally affected by that. And it leads them to tears. They're the ones that we are supposed to envy because they will be comforted. And then last week, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we saw that contrary to what we might think, meek people aren't weak people. They're actually incredibly strong, powerful people who have so much self-control and love for others that they're able to stop fighting for their own rights and instead stand up for and defend the rights of others and the honor of God. And so Jesus has been introducing us to this way of living that's completely upside down to us. It's completely different than how our world works. But what we've been seeing is it's not that Jesus has things upside down. It's that our world has things upside down and Jesus is trying to put things right. And so today we're going to continue with the next beatitude and see what surprises and culture shock Jesus has in store for us today. And what we're going to see is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We have a slide for it. And we're going to have three points, the blessings of proper hunger, what to hunger and thirst for, and the promised satisfaction. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you that even when our world is upside down, that you care enough about us to come and tell us how to live properly. That you don't just sit back and say, you're on your own now, deal with the mess you've made, but that you step in to fix the mess. And God, we pray that as we look at your word today and, and hear how you teach us to live, that we would have hearts that are receptive, that we would actually see the beauty of the way that you call us to live and that we would desire this and live it out in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So first off, we have blessings of proper hunger. So just like all the previous Beatitudes, this one at first glance seems weird. I don't know that I've ever envied a hungry person in my life. Have any of you envied a hungry person? Typically, if I'm with someone and they're like, I'm so hungry, I'm so thirsty, I thank God that I'm not like that person. Not in the sense that I think I'm better than them, just in the sense that I don't like being hungry and I'm thankful that I'm not hungry right now. Anyone relate to that? Yeah? A couple of, I see some heads nodding, yeah? I mean, think about all the reasons that we avoid hunger and thirst. First, it's just uncomfortable. No one likes having their tummy grumbling. No one likes their throat being really dry. If you're a little bit more hungry, maybe that feeling of like, I'm gonna faint because my blood sugar is so low, it's just uncomfortable. We don't like that. But that's not the only reason. It, it also messes with our self-control. Like you guys have heard of being hangry, right? You know that sensation where your hunger magically morphs into anger and you lash out at all the people around you because it must be their fault that I have not gotten food to eat yet. And anyone who stands between me and food is public enemy number one, right? Hunger messes with our self-control. And then hunger also just makes us so desperate. Hunger and thirst, they make us desperate and they lead us to do things we wouldn't normally do. So when I was pretty new in Hong Kong, I was out for a hike one day and I ran out of water. 
And it was a longer hike and it was a pretty warm day and I was getting very thirsty. I was concerned about what would happen if I stayed on the trail too much longer without water. And so we were walking along, we came to a, a bathroom in the middle of the woods and they had sinks there. And they had a sign above the sinks. It said, unfiltered stream water. And I did a little cost benefit analysis in my mind. I can drink this water and it may give me bacteria or worms that will make me violently ill. But if I do that, they probably won't make me sick for several hours, which means I can be at home by then and get to the hospital very easily. But if I don't drink this water, there's a good chance that I will pass out on the trail, which is far worse than needing to go to the emergency room later on. So I'm gonna drink this water, right? But when we're desperate, we do things, and by the way, it was like the most delicious water I've ever had in my life because I was so thirsty, right? When we're thirsty and hungry, we do things that are short-sighted, potentially very dangerous to get our hunger and thirst satisfied. We're willing to infect our bodies with horrible bacteria and worms just for the sake of having a drink of water. Now, if you think about that, it's, it's uncomfortable. It messes with our self-control. It leads us to make very short-sighted, potentially destructive decisions. That's what hunger and thirst do. Why would anyone see someone in that position and think to themselves, I envy that person. Really wish I could be in their shoes right now. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Do you see how shocking this beatitude is? Jesus is telling us to live in a way that's completely backwards to the way that we see and experience the world. And so in order for this beatitude to make sense to us, we need to recognize something. And what we need to recognize is that we all hunger and thirst for things all the time. We all hunger and thirst for things all the time. Not just food, but other things in life. We all have things that we look at and we tell ourselves, if only I had that thing in my life, I'd be okay. I'd be satisfied. And, and so they're typically good things, but we take them and we make them ultimate and we reorient our lives completely around getting that thing. So it could be something like a good family. If only I had a good family, everything would be okay. Could be a successful career, enough money in the bank that I'll be secure through retirement, comfort, any number of other things. We hunger and thirst for these things. They're not bad things, they're good things. But when we make them ultimate in our lives, we reorient our lives around getting those things. We hunger and thirst for them. Whatever that thing is that we look at and we say, my life will not be okay, will not be complete until I have this thing. That's our deepest hunger and thirst. And just like with physical hunger, when we don't have it, we get uncomfortable. When we see someone as a threat to us getting it, we get hangry, we lash out at them. Just like when we're physically desperate due to hunger and thirst, we act in really short-sighted and destructive ways, when we have that thing that we believe my life is not complete until I get it, we're going to act in really short-sighted and destructive ways to get that thing we hunger and thirst for. See, I think in our world, we tend to look at this beatitude and our default assumption is Jesus is saying, 
you're content and comfortable right now, but you need to stop being content and instead start hungering and thirsting. So give up your comfort and become miserable. But that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is you already hunger and thirst for something. Actually, many things. You have many things that you look at and think, once I get that, I can be okay. I can be satisfied. But your hunger and thirst is leaving you miserable. Like even if you get that thing you're hungering and thirsting for, guess what? It can't satisfy you forever. Nothing in this world can give you that, that eternal security that your heart longs for. You might get the money in the bank, but what if the stock market crashes? You might get someone to fall in love with you, but what if they leave you later on? You can't have that lasting security here and now. And so Jesus is inviting us to exchange the short-sighted, destructive hungers of our hearts for a better hunger that can actually satisfy us. And he's saying, yeah, there may be some discomfort to this here and now, but there's a reward coming in the future that's greater than anything this world can offer you. And as long as we listen to this invitation, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As long as we hear that as an invitation to stop being comfortable and then be hungry instead, we're just not going to want it. But when we see it's actually a call to exchange a destructive, harmful hunger and thirst for a greater, healthy one, that's when we'll begin to see that it's actually a wonderful invitation. Hunger and thirst of some type, it's unavoidable. And if you think about it, even though we don't like hunger and thirst, they have really good purposes. Like in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 26, it says, a, man, a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Like, what does that mean? It means that hunger drives us to action. There are people in our world today who are con- like have jobs and contribute to society in really positive, meaningful ways who wouldn't be doing that if they could get food without working. You ever thought about that? There are people who have jobs who do great things for the world simply because they need food in their bellies and that's the only way to get it. That's a blessing to the world. God has designed the world in such a way that hunger, even physical hunger for food, can be a blessing to ourselves and others because hunger leads us to seek out ways of getting that hunger satisfied. And if that's the case for something as everyday and common as food, how much more can a hunger for God's way of living bring blessing to the world? I don't know if you've noticed this, but whatever else it is that we hunger for, good family, career success, money in the bank, comfort, those things reorient the world. So who or what is at the center? Us. We expect everything to revolve around us. Everything is seen and judged through the lens of me. What do I want? How can I get it? What's standing in my way of getting this? Anyone standing in my way is an enemy to be conquered and destroyed. But when we long for God's way of living, it actually reorients us. It takes us out of the center and puts God in the center of the universe. And when God's in the center, guess how he tells us to live? He tells us to love others regardless of how they treat us, which means I can live life totally differently. The enemy is no longer them out there who are in my way. They're actually image bearers of God who I now get to love. 
The enemy is the sin inside me that keeps me from loving them, that I get to fight every day with, with God helping me so that I can then love them more deeply and live a fuller, truer life each day as I live with God at the center of the universe. And Jesus is saying, when we can actually learn to live life that way, with God at the center, setting us free to love others, that's the most satisfying way there is to live. That's the enviable life. And so what is this way of living that Jesus is calling us to pursue, this this righteousness that he says to hunger and thirst for? Well, let's check out what to hunger and thirst for. Now I realize righteousness, it's not a word we use much in our world today. And when it does get used, it's really often in a negative sense, like self-righteousness. Oh, that person thinks they're so great. That, that person thinks they're better than everyone around them. They look down on people and judge them. The self-righteous person, they're not good to have as friends because they always remind you how far short you fall of their standard. And my guess would be for most people in our world, when this word righteousness comes up, that's the picture that comes to mind of, of the self-righteous person who looks down on everyone else. And again, if that's what we hear when we hear, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, most of us rightly are going to be like, you know, if I have to be a stuck-up jerk to follow Jesus, not interested. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's, righteousness is a word that had different levels of meaning in the ancient world. And so in the Bible, it can mean one of three things. We have them up here on the screen. It can mean legally, legal righteousness means you're in court and you're not guilty. You didn't do the crime. You're not getting any punishment. Moral righteousness is living in the right way, having an established character that you do the right thing when you are given the opportunity. And then social righteousness is trying to make society a, a fairer, better, more just place, uh, what we would call today social justice. So when the word righteousness is used in the New Testament, it can be referring to any of these three things, depending on the context. Now, which of these three is Jesus referring to? Because that's going to make a difference in what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And the answer is, if you look at the commentaries and everything, they're going to say it's the second one. He's talking about living the right way. It makes sense. If you look through the Beatitudes, so many of these, like the merciful, the, the peacemakers, the meek, they, they relate to how we interact with other people. And the moral righteousness interacts with how we interact with other people. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have this deep, insatiable longing to live the right way and do the right thing. Enviable are the people who are people of character, who consistently do the right thing for the right reason. And of course, if you live morally in the right way, you're going to have a desire for the world around you to operate that way too, right? So if we're hungering and thirsting for moral righteousness, it's going to lead to us hungering and thirsting for social righteousness too, because when we're becoming this type of person who does the right thing for the right reason, we want the world to operate that way as well. So Jesus says, hunger and thirst for moral righteousness and that will lead to a hunger and thirst for social righteousness. But there's a problem. When we hunger and thirst for moral righteousness, it so easily slips into hungering and thirsting for self-righteousness. Right? There's a classic example of this in the Bible. It was a group called the Pharisees. 
They were the Jewish religious leaders and externally they were righteous. Like they, they took the Bible's law and they followed it not just to the letter, but beyond the letter of the law. They said, we really, really, really don't want to break God's laws. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some extra rules and put them in place. That like, if God's law is here, our rules will be here. So that even if we cross the line and break our rules, we're still far away from breaking God's laws and we're safe. That's how the Pharisees operated. They, they went above and beyond what God called them to do. And do you know how Jesus felt about their righteousness and obedience? He called them hypocrites. In Matthew 23, he tells them again and again, woe to you. Woe to you is basically the opposite of blessed are in, in our passage today. If the blessed one is the one God approves of who we're supposed to envy, the one who you say woe to you, they're the one God does not approve of and you should not in any way, shape or form want to be like this person. So Jesus is super harsh on them. Why? Well, in Matthew 23, 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. He's saying, you look great on the outside, but inside there's death. You're spiritually dead. And all your goodness is just trying to cover that up. You're putting on a show to hide the reality, which if we're trying to follow what Jesus says here and, and live morally righteous, that leaves us with a problem, right? Like Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for this moral righteousness, to pursue it with this desperate effort. And yet the people in his day who appeared to do this with the most effort are the ones that Jesus got the most upset with. He says, pursue moral righteousness. It's directly the opposite of self-righteousness, but when we try and pursue moral righteousness, it always slips into self-righteousness. So how do we live in a way that's truly morally righteous without slipping into self-righteousness? And this is where that first type of righteousness, the legal type of righteousness comes in. Because the problem with the Pharisees isn't that they were trying to live righteously. Their problem wasn't that they were trying to do the right thing. The problem is they were trying to use moral righteousness to get legal righteousness. Their great hope was we can do enough good things that when we die and we stand before God, we can show him all the great things we've done and say, God, aren't I great? You can accept me and, and find me not guilty in the heavenly courts because I am so amazing. That's what they were trying to do. But here's the problem about courts. Courts don't exist to reward you for doing good things. Courts exist to punish you for breaking the law. Like if you're on trial for stealing a car and you get up before the judge and you're like, you know, judge, I did the crime. I stole the car, but look at all the wonderful things I've done in my life. Look at all the people I've helped, all the great things I've done. Is all your greatness going to get you a verdict of not guilty? No, the only thing the court cares about is whether or not you did the crime. Like doing some great stuff in a human court might get you a lighter sentence, but you're still going to be guilty. It's not going to land you a verdict of not guilty for a crime you've actually committed. 
And when it comes to God's judgment and God's verdict on our lives, whether we can stand before him and get this verdict of not guilty, whether we can be found legally righteous by God, it works the same way. A lot of people in our world think, you know, if, if there is a God, if he actually judges, he probably judges on some type of scale or balance. You take all the bad things you've done, put them over here, take all the good things you've done, put them over here and see which side is heavier, right? We've all heard that before. We've maybe even thought that way before. And if that's how God judges, then it makes perfect sense to be like the Pharisees. Do all the good things you can so you can make this side heavier so it outweighs this side. But that's not how God judges. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Did you catch that? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Breaking one of God's commandments in any way makes you guilty when you're on trial before God. Like if you went your entire life and the only thing you ever did wrong was tell one little lie, let's be honest, none of us is that good. But if you were that good, you went your entire life, you told one little lie and you stood on trial before God, you would be guilty before God's judgment seat. In the same way that someone standing before a human court who had done absolutely nothing else wrong their entire life except kill one person is still guilty of murder, right? That's how courts work. It's not about how much good you've done. It's whether or not you've done the crime. And if you've done the crime, no amount of good deeds, no amount of moral righteousness can fix that because good deeds can't undo guilt in a court. Moral righteousness cannot give legal righteousness if you've actually done the crime. And as long as we're relying on that moral righteousness to give us legal righteousness, we're acting just like the Pharisees. We're being self-righteous and we're not pursuing the true moral righteousness that Jesus is calling us to do. We might be doing all the right things on the outside, but we're doing them for all the wrong reasons. We can only live out true moral righteousness when we're already legally righteous. So how do we get legal righteousness? Jesus. Classic Sunday school answer. Jesus. He's the only one who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, who actually was able to earn legal righteousness through his own behavior. And on the cross, he faced the penalty for all the guilt that all of us deserve for everything we've ever done wrong. Which means that if we trust in Jesus, all the penalty we deserve has already been paid. And because of that, you and I can stand before God because the one who was righteous took the punishment of the one who wasn't. We, who are not righteous on our own, can stand before God and get that verdict of not guilty despite all of our sin and all of our failure and all of our shortcomings. When we trust in Jesus, God makes us legally righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes all our sin, puts it on Jesus. The righteous one becomes sin. He takes all Jesus' righteousness, puts it on us, so that we, the sinful ones, can be righteous. It's known as the great exchange in theological studies. It's a trade-off. 
And once we are legally righteous, we can begin to live out this moral righteousness that Jesus called us to. Because then our our moral good deeds can be done with the right motives. They can be done as acts of worship and obedience to God in thanks for him rescuing us and saving us rather than attempts to earn our way to God so we don't need God anymore. You can think of it this way. Moral righteousness without legal righteousness is rebellion. It's trying to live life without needing God. But moral righteousness in response to legal righteousness is worship. So when Jesus tells us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is calling us to live a certain way, but he's calling us to live that way in response to the love and salvation that he's already given us, not as an alternative that keeps us from needing him. And he promises a reward to those who live this way as well. So let's look at that reward, the promised satisfaction. And the promise is they will be satisfied. He says, those who live with this hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied or filled. And just as with all the Beatitudes, the they right here is emphatic. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, you can hunger and thirst for lots of things. You can hunger and thirst for career success and fame and a good family and money, and you can be satisfied in those ways. Or you can hunger and thirst for righteousness and be satisfied in that way. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if your deepest hunger and thirst is for anything else, for fame, for money, for career success, for a good family, you will not be satisfied. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is the only way to get true and lasting satisfaction. And that may seem really cruel to you. Like, why would God not give lasting satisfaction to someone who hungers and thirsts for a good family? Isn't a good family like a good thing that the Bible tells us we should want and encourages us to pursue? But remember, we pointed out earlier, when we hunger and thirst primarily for anything other than righteousness, we make the world orbit around us. The person whose deepest hunger and thirst is for a good family, they're not primarily concerned with loving their family members. They're primarily concerned with using their family members to create the reality the way they want it. When the child of someone like this acts out and causes a scene, the first question that you ask when when your deepest hunger and thirst is for a good family is not, how can I love and care for my child right now in the midst of their pain? When your deepest hunger and thirst is for a good family and your child is acting out, your question is, how do I get my child back in order, back in line, so we can get things back to the way they're supposed to be? And you know what that does to relationships in the family? I'm sure we have people in this room who have experienced this or seen it in people around them. It just eats those relationships away from the inside out. It destroys them. And solid relationships are the essential core for a good and healthy family. When we put other hungers and thirsts above our hunger and thirst for righteousness, we make the world orbit around ourselves and we end up acting in ways that completely destroy our deepest desires. But as C.S. Lewis says, when you put first things first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. When we prioritize this pursuit of righteousness that God calls us to pursue and make that a greater hunger and thirst than our desires for other things, not that we get rid of those desires, but that we put them in their proper place as lesser desires, 
it actually leads us to love and care for others. And when you're loving and caring for others, guess what? You're gonna act in a way that makes you generally a great spouse and a great parent. When you're loving and caring for others, you're generally gonna act in ways that, that make you a good employee and responsible with your money. And you're actually gonna live in ways that generally bring career success and financial prosperity and give you a good family. That's general rule, not universal reality. But generally, when we're living in this way, the other things that we hunger and thirst for are going to just take care of themselves and fall into place. I mean, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you get the first things first, everything else falls into place. If you flip it upside down and get it wrong, everything is out of order. So as we hunger and thirst for righteousness— we seek desperately to live in ways that align with God's commands. We seek his honor and glory. He says, we will be satisfied. And as with the rest of the Beatitudes, the full satisfaction that's promised here comes in eternity. For those who live this way, there's a day coming where we will experience full legal, moral, and social righteousness forever. And we'll live in a world where these things are never threatened or taken away. And do you know how the Bible describes that day? It's a feast, the perfect antidote to hunger. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Is anyone hungry now? I am hungry now. Yes. <laughs> God's preparing not just a day, but an eternity when those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will have lasting satisfaction and fullness, a feast forever. But the satisfaction starts in part here and now as well. Because as we hunger and thirst for righteousness here and now, guess what happens? God actually works in us so we become more righteous here and now. We, we live more in alignment with what's right and not so that we can be self-righteous and judgmental of others, but actually in a way where we're seeing others more like God sees them and learning to love them more deeply because we're becoming more like Jesus and Jesus loved people more deeply than anyone else who ever lived. And as we become more righteous, there's this level of satisfaction right here, right now, because we're seeing and experiencing this reality that growth is actually possible. I'm not stuck how I was five years ago, thank God but I can become more like him each day. But the satisfaction here and now, it's always partial. Because even as we grow and as we see our progress, we, we quickly realize new parts of our lives we never even noticed before that are also a mess. And so we have a new hunger and thirst for righteousness in those areas born. We get satisfied, but that satisfaction leads to a deeper hunger. And so the satisfaction here and now it's always partial because it always leads to a new hunger. So what does it look like in practice to live with this hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, first it means continuing along the path of the Beatitudes. The first three, those who mourn the poor in spirit and the meek, they've all been focused on recognizing our sin, the mess it's made, and mourning it and living humbly in light of that. They're all focused backwards. 
But from this one on, there's a transition where we're from here on looking ahead. God doesn't want us to stay stuck on our past failures. We needed to look back and see it to prepare us for what's coming. But actually now we're doing that so that we can move forward in a way that's in alignment with God and how he wants us to live. And the first step, like we said, is trusting in Jesus, receiving that gift of legal righteousness that God has made available to us through him. And if you haven't done that before and you wanna know more about how to do that, come find me after service, come find Les after service. We would love to chat with you and share more about that. But if you've already done that, here's a next step that you can do this week. Start asking God, what are the wrong things I'm hungering and thirsting for in my life that get in the way of me hungering and thirsting for righteousness? What are my wrong hungers and thirsts? And as you recognize them and things come to mind, ask God to show you what false promises is this thing I'm hungering for making to me that makes me want it? And how are those promises actually lies? And as we see the lies of these false promises, it's gonna set us free from these hungers so that we can have the proper hunger and thirst for righteousness that God wants us to have. And how do we identify these wrong hungers and thirsts? Well, a little, a little helpful tip, pay attention to your emotions. Our emotions are little signposts, billboards, that just show us what we're hungering and thirsting for on the inside. So this week, if you feel yourself getting angry, maybe you hear your voice just getting louder and sharper. Maybe you're having these like rage fantasies about just taking out revenge on someone who's wronged you. Whenever you notice anger in your heart, just stop and ask, what is making me angry right now? Be curious. Most likely it's some deep hunger and thirst in your heart that isn't going the way you want it to because someone else is getting in the way of it. And when you identify what that hunger and thirst is, just bring it back to God. Hey God, I'm having wrong hungers and thirst right now. Help me. Maybe you find yourself getting stressed this week, like your shoulder and neck muscles are getting tight or you're just a little fidgety and tapping your fingers and toes. Just pause. What's making me so stressed right now? A lot of the times we're stressed because we want more control over those things we hunger and thirst for in life. And we feel like we can't get it, but I need to. So God, what's making me stressed right now? What are the wrong hungers and thirsts? Even positive emotions like joy, they tell you something's gone very right with these things I'm hungering and thirsting for. Our emotions are great indicators of what our hearts are hungering and thirsting for. So when you notice your emotions this week, keep an eye open for them and just be curious, what is this telling me about my true hunger and thirst in life? And if my deepest hunger and thirst are for things other than God's righteousness, just talk with God about it. Ask him to, to fill you with hunger and thirst for, for his righteousness. And it's also helpful to share with someone else in the church as well so that they can pray for you and they can help you in that process of growth. So church, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. It's not the way we expect things to work in this world. At first glance, it feels quite backwards. Jesus is continuing to just slam us with the surprise of this culture shock. But he's not letting up because he knows this truly is the best way to live. And he loves us, so he wants us to live in the best way possible. Blessed, enviable, 
are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, teaching us these difficult truths, but truths that we need, truths that are good for us. God, we confess that we hunger and thirst for many things that often get in the way of us hungering and thirsting for your righteousness. We pray that you would be at work in our hearts this week, showing us those wrong hungers and thirsts and filling us with a deeper hunger and thirst each day for the righteousness that only comes from you. In Jesus' name, amen.